Hey friends, God bless you, peace be with you. So happy you're joining us for this new episode of Being and Making Disciples. In this episode, we interview Dr. Michael Dauphiné. He is a professor at Ave Maria University, and we're talking about a book that he co-authored with Dr. Matthew Lovering. Those two guys are giants in Catholic scholarship. Even though they're young authors, they have just produced so much more than you know, most people out there. And their new book, which was published in tandem with Word on Fire, is called The Wisdom of the Word, Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions About Catholicism. This is a great tool. I think every good evangelist, really every, every Catholic, needs access to a great library of books so that when people give us really challenging questions, we can either lend something out to them or we know where to go to kind of come up with our own uh, best answer to them. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. It was an absolute delight. You can tell that Michael is not only someone who is very brilliant and understands the faith well, but he lives it. And the love of God and the desire for people to come to know that love was evident in the way he spoke, and it's definitely evident in the way he writes. So you can pick up this book with a big discount, 20% discount. If you go to wordonfire.org slash wisdom, that's wordonfire.org slash wisdom, you'll get a 20% discount on this new book. And that way you're also supporting Word on Fire and not just some you know huge uh, non-Catholic book publishing company or book distribution company. So uh, stay tuned, listen up, enjoy. I know you're going to love it and know that we're praying for you. Peace. Well, friends, welcome. Thank you for coming back for another episode of Being and Making Disciples podcast. We are very excited to have with us here Dr. Michael Dauphiné, who is the Father Matthew Lamb Professor of Catholic Theology at Ave Maria University down in Naples, or Ave Maria, Florida, not just Naples, it's near Naples. And today we're going to be discussing his new book that he co-wrote with a fellow Catholic professor, Matthew Lovering, and that book is The Wisdom of the Word, recently published by Word on Fire. And this book is, I'll give a subtitle, Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions About Catholicism. So, Dr. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you, Dan and Justin. I'm really looking forward to participating in your conversation. Great. Well, uh, well, let us let's jump right in. So when I read your book, um, I immediately started thinking like our whole our whole kind of lens here is evangelization. Like I think Justin and I stay up at night thinking, how can we make the whole world Catholic? Like what, what can we do to get everybody to join the church and experience? We have all the answers, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I thought of two distinct audiences when I read this book who I thought would be moved by it. And the first one were evangelical Protestants who. Uh, love scripture so much and turn to scripture really is their sole source of truth. And what I realized is they would find in this book really, really sound answers and well thought out arguments based in scripture for why Catholics believe what we believe and do what we do. And that's, I think it's important. You know, you always want to uh, kind of have the same footing as the people you're discussing with. And if we go into a discussion with Protestants thinking we can convince them with papal authority, and they come into it thinking they're going to convince us with scripture, then we're just going to be two ships passing in the night. Um, the other group that I think would would really uh, kind of jump into this and really uh, get on board with it is actually skeptics, uh, non-theists, atheists, agnostics. Um, and I don't think most people would start with scripture for that. But one of the reasons why I really like that you you did was you show the coherence of Catholicism and scripture and uh, what we can discover with reason. And so you really take scripture as a starting point and say, okay, this is what scripture says about God. And then here's what we can know about God through everything, through revelation and through reason. Um, is that, did I kind of like accurately summarize where you, what, what you tried yeah. to do with the book? Yeah, I, I think you uh, saw uh, really clearly what's, what's at stake in the book. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we wrote the book and why we really love the book uh, is because it came out of, in a way, our own search for truth. Uh, you know, uh, one of Matthew's a convert, I'm a revert uh, back to Catholicism. So both of us went from a time of not believing in Christianity at all to a time of believing in Christianity and then to a time of believing in Catholicism. And so these questions, in a way, that we have about who are we, 
What is God? Who is God? What are his plans for us? How can we think about these? We have to remember that the Bible is really a source of answers. Um, and I think in so many ways, what's happened today is that the Bible is kind of like a special code that only a certain club thinks about. And so people forget that it's really a language. It's a culture. It's, it's like a city. Anyone can come visit. But if you come visit it, you have to begin to learn the language, right? You won't understand it at first. It'll be very confusing. You're going to need a tour guide to lead you around Paris, right? And help you learn some French. But over time, you begin to learn, wait a second, this is the key history. These are some key moments. And so what we really wanted to do is the Bible had the Bible. The beautiful thing about the Bible is the Bible asks most of the questions that we have, right? The, the Bible itself asks, why do the good suffer? Right. Why is it that the wicked thrive? Um, the Bible asks, right, in a way, right, all these great questions. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. That's from Psalm 8. So the Bible asks a lot of questions and it records a lot of human questions, but it also provides answers. Right? But to learn those answers and to understand what they mean, we really need a guide. And that's what we try to do in our own teaching and in our writing in this situation is so that the Bible actually is rather coherent. It offers a very complex story written over right, thousands of years and over many different authors through inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, but there are fundamental principles that can be understood and, and that once we begin to see those, we can really see that the Bible begins to make sense. I think people can't really believe in the Bible unless first they believe what the Bible's communicating. Uh, so just as a little example, I like to remind people that if you think about Psalm 23, right, a beautiful psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, the point of that psalm isn't to know the psalm. The point is to know the shepherd. Right? Nonetheless, we can't come to know God as shepherd without that psalm. Yeah. When I look at the cosmos, I don't see God as my shepherd. I don't see a God of mercy. He needs to speak that message of mercy into history. And then I begin to discover it with what he does with Abraham and with Moses and with David and Solomon. And then especially what he does with Jesus Christ. Right? That's when I begin to discover God's mercy. And I discover that I have a place in the universe. But these are fundamental questions. What is the meaning of my life? And that's what the Bible helps to disclose and give us meaning. And in that sense, it's these are complex questions. They're complex answers. But they're really answers that are at the heart of each person. Each person, I believe, is looking for these sorts of answers and asking these sorts of questions. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, the quote unquote woke culture, right? Everyone wants to be awake to what the truth is. But I just want to share the other day I was listening to a talk by a famous podcast. I'll just name him because I have it was Joe Rogan. And he was talking about just how he's become so successful. A lot of people are enamored with Joe Rogan. But he was talking about the golden rule. And he, then he started saying, you know, it's just, it's just stupid to say you have to believe that because someone said it 2000 years ago, or it was in some book from a long time ago. That's just dumb. You just, it's self-evident. But in chapter six, which is my favorite title because it hits that relativism. And this is that second audience Dan was talking about in chapter six. It's why not live and think like everyone else. I love that title, but here's a quote from it um, that, that really hit home for me. The connection may be falsely taken to, to imply that those who do not believe in God are entirely immoral and behave worse than believers, or it may be falsely understood as implying that believers cannot figure out for themselves that they ought to love their neighbors and behave decently. The truth is that revelation does not mute or moral conscience, it enlightens it. So I, I'm like, I wish Joe Rogan would read this, this chapter at least to see. No, we're not saying we're not saying that you can't figure that out on your own, Joe, but Jesus will help us understand it and live it to the fullest yeah. why we're doing it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a beautiful point, right? Yeah, much of the moral law and much of the goodness of the world and the organization of the creator can be seen from the natural world. The book of wisdom and Paul and Romans speak about that, that we can come to know truth, both about God and his existence from the organization of the world. And we can also come to know even basic principles of, of our morality. But the question I would ask is, number one, what do we do when we don't follow the golden rule? 
right? You know, that's what I would ask is, what do you do when you don't follow? What do you, what do, you do when there is something of which you're ashamed of that you can't let go of? Is there a sin that you can't forgive yourself? Where do we take that? Uh, and that's when all of a sudden we begin to see, wait a second, God has a lot to say about that, right? God yeah. actually is the one who alone can forgive us uh, and, and, and right, you know, ultimately heal us of our own wounded pride and ego. Yeah, I'm thinking of a line from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he's talking about how strange Jesus is. And he says, like, it's one thing if I were to say to you, like, I forgive you for the wrong you've done against me. It would be an entirely different thing for me to say to you, Michael, I forgive you for the wrong you've done against Justin. Like, yes. I don't have the authority to do that. And that's one of those those weird yeah. things about Christianity. And that sets Jesus apart from every other He's he, like, he's not just a spiritual leader. He's not just a wisdom figure. Like he's either God or he's a bad man because he takes that, like the authority of mercy upon him. Like who forgives you for something you've done to other people? Like yeah. nobody could do that. Okay. And I think what even makes it more interesting, uh, and this is one of the, uh, the chapters that we have after looking at um, why believe in God and in Jesus Christ. The second chapter is why listen to the church? Uh, and in part, because what Jesus does is not only claim for himself to be able to forgive sins, right? Who is the son of man that you have authority on earth to forgive sins? But he gives that same authority to the apostles. He says to Peter in Matthew 16, whatever sins you bind on earth will be bound and whatever sins you loose on earth will be loosed. And when he rises from the dead, and appears to the uh, 11 disciples at that point, because justice, or I'm um, sorry, not um, Judas was off, um, right? He says, peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Whatever sins are forgiven are forgiven, and whatever sins you do not forgive are not forgiven. So that's that beautiful element, right, that is really powerful. That yeah, yeah. not only does Jesus say to the paralytic, but through the church, Jesus then says to us, Right. So why do we listen to the church, by the way? It's not it's because the church is ultimately the voice of Christ communicating his forgiveness, his newness of life. Wow. Yeah. You know, this book makes me think of First Peter 315. Always be prepared to give it a reason for the hope that you have. Anyone who asks, it gives folks ammunition, if you will. It gives us great apologetics. It gives us great uh, things to reply to. You know, I, I just. A little off topic, or kind, but kind of related. I was watching this documentary once that was um, about children who went a different path in their family. There's a very sad story of a of a young man who committed a murder when he was a teenager, and the dad was talking about that experience, and he said, "You know, I don't know what to do with the guilt, and I just realized I just got to live with it." But if you encounter someone that's believing that lie, that's where what you said, Doctor Michael, comes in. We have, you know, we can go back to this great reasoning of the church and what Scripture tells. Say, no, you. You don't have to live with that hope. Here's the difference that Jesus can make in your life. He can even forget. Yeah. He can help you experience healing from that. So it's just great, great tools to have in every evangelist or apologist or catechist tool belt, really, is what right. you've given us in this book. And, and one thing that's really important is if you go back to, say, Moses and his encounter with God in Exodus, right? First, he learns that God is I am who am, or God is the creator of everything. But then later in Exodus, when he's up on the mountain with God, he says, right, he says, show me your glory. And um, God says, like, you want, you can't see my face and live. So I'm just <laughs> going to pass by and I'm going to show you my glory. And then it's then he says, you know, for I am God uh, forgiving. I'm a merciful God forgiving e like each generation up to the thousandth generation. Right. While still holding the sinner accountable. Right. You know, but so that mass message of mercy is right there at the very beginning of the revelation of God's name to Moses, right? The fulfillment of that will ultimately take place in Jesus Christ. But it's very important. One of the things we always remember, we always try to show uh, people in this book is that God's message of mercy, his message of forgiveness comes about very early on in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the promise and then Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. You know, I've, I've never, I have heard that passage and I've like, I've never really thought about it. And especially how there's that kind of the, the false accusation leveled against the God of the old Testament. He's yeah. vengeful and wrathful. 
but like I, you know i know i've heard that it's like echoing in my ears from you know how many however many times i've heard that how can people so just kind of like quickly dismiss that i mean that's that's yeah. like the primary theophany in the old testament like nothing more than that like god i mean even like sh- lets moses see his back and says that and yet we like we so easily forget it yeah and it's kind of fun by the way you, you know that in the new testament when jesus is transfigured um, he, uh, Moses shows up. So Moses finally gets to see God's face yeah, in Jesus yeah. Christ later on. <laughs> um, but I think we have a lot of, I think, you know, you talked about um, some Protestants may simply have an assumption that the church corrupted the message of the Bible. That's just, you know, so they just begin there. Um, and so what we want to do is try to un, try to show them, well, actually, there's a way of seeing that almost that everything the church does is really carrying out this biblical mandate. We're yeah. living in the biblical story. That's really what the church is. Same kind of thing with the skeptics. And and when I look at skeptics or people that are materialists, I often think of basically Catholics that were raised in the church, but have a lot of ideas that they get from our culture. Because sometimes our culture seeps into people's minds more than the culture of the church. Yeah. Right. And that's especially true today. So that's why we try to present also their questions. Right. Does the world make sense? Does God exist? Why believe in God? Why do these things? And then try to show that there are probably very, I think in my mind, anybody who's asking a question, right, if they're genuinely asking it, then they're doing, so to speak, they're or on their way to truth. But the issue is, if you're going to ask a question, you also have to be prepared to, to begin thinking about an answer. Right. And so if we're going to have beliefs, we also have to say, why are these the beliefs we hold? And I think that aspect is that's why we really like setting up this book around questions, because asking questions of why the church believes this is not bad. And if you grow up in the church and all of a sudden discover that you're supposed to believe these things, but you don't feel that you do, you're not a bad person. You're just on your way. So, right. That's what we try to do is say good, good questions are fine, but good questions also deserve good answers. And if you're going to ask questions, Right. I would also encourage people to right spend time to think about their answers. Right. Think about because presumption is that the Bible actually does have something to say, but we often have a lot of caricatures. Again, the Bible's old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Old Testament God is mean. This is not true. Right. Psalm 103 says, right, for as far as the east is from the west, so far have uh, has God removed his our transgressions from us. Beautiful message. In some ways, right? Even like a little foreshadowing of the gospel, yeah, right? Of Jesus yeah. Christ opening his arms on the cross. Wow. And I mean, that's, we're talking hundreds of years before Christ at the, like at the earliest um, that yeah. we see this beautiful revelation of God's mercy. So no, that's, um, we can, I think we can never be too intimately knowledgeable about scripture. Um, Cause it's just only, it's only going to enrich like everything from our prayer life to our search for truth, everything. Yeah. And I think the other side of it, too, I just want to say is that in many ways, Scripture is really God's story that he tells us about ourselves. The world tells us a story about ourselves. We tell ourselves stories. Um, We may tell ourselves the story that we're much better than we are. Right. We're pretty good. We don't really need to improve much. Or we may tell ourselves the story that we're not good enough. Right. Everybody tells themselves these stories. um, And the world tells us the stories. Right. That you're not good enough. Um, You'll never be enough. Uh, right. We even have in some ways within the biblical terminology, Satan is the accuser. He's the one who says you're not good enough. Right. And into that, the Bible really is the God telling us our real story. And he basically is saying, you feel like you're lost in the universe. You feel like you're alone, but you were originally mine. I created you to be mine. You fell and got lost due to sin. And I have been calling you back first in the Old Testament, then definitively in Jesus Christ. So really God's, the Bible is really God's rescue mission for us. And he's basically, it's telling us a story. And so if we become separated from the Bible, we might believe in God. We might even believe in maybe the church or believe something like go to mass and believe in the Eucharist. But we may not really believe how the story of our lives, the deepest story, right, is it is the story that God, in a way, unfolds for us through scripture. And so that we it's uh, Lewis. Uh, sorry. C.S. Lewis's friend, Gerald Tolkien, said that when you read great books, great stories, the best thing would be to you want to almost wake up in that story. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. That would be amazing to be able to live in that story. And that's the good news. He says, uh, Tolkien says, right, that's what actually happens in Christianity. We get to wake up and realize we're in God's story, that greatest story that's ever been told. That's wow. pretty good news. Yeah, I have never thought about that. I love that. So, um, Dr. Mike, going back, you talk about the questions. We're, we're both curious. How did you come up with the questions that you chose? We especially like chapter four. You know, going back to the quote-unquote strangeness of Jesus, how can Christ's blood be good news? How did you come up with these questions? Well, um, first off, I should say that uh, Matthew Levering uh, came up with a lot of them. I think I, I, I modified them. You were asking a little bit at one point uh, just about what it's like to co-author with another person. And I have to say, Matthew and I have just barely been blessed to be excellent friends. Uh, we studied in graduate school together um, when we were both kind of learning everything. I think uh, when I met him, he was still in RCIA. Um, so a lot of it is just these natural conversations and um you know, friendships that grow into a partnership. But there's also a way that um, Matthew's always just had a gift to be able to kind of outline a book in about five minutes. Uh, it's partly why he's, you know, written dozens. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm not like that. I am a kind of a much slower uh, plotter of working and writing and teaching. Um, but when we did it, we looked at these and uh, the key thing really was trying to think about the basic question, which is we have a crisis in the church. And as Bishop Barron said, the fundamental crisis is that people no longer believe, especially young people, no longer believe in the classical teachings of Christianity. Well, if they don't believe in the church, if they don't believe in the teachings, they're going to walk away. And so what we felt is that fundamentally, the Bible has to help us with these. If we don't believe in the Bible as the anchor of the church, then the church is just another human group. If God didn't speak definitively in the Bible, he certainly isn't speaking through the church. So we felt like the way to do that was then to ask certain questions and then begin to show how the Bible can answer them. And so the questions we thought that were most important were kind of dealing with the principal doctrinal questions first, and then getting to the moral questions, right? The moral questions of the church only make sense when we understand the doctrine, right? You can't understand the church's teaching about sexuality unless we understand the church's teaching about creation and not only creation, but also about sin and not only sin, but also redemption, right? All of these things matter. So, so some of them, for instance, we also looked at the first chapter, why believe in God and in Jesus Christ? Well, in some ways, right, the world is so ordered, as the Book of Wisdom says and Paul teaches in Romans, we can, re we can reason to a source of the universe in God. But that's not enough. When I see also the woundedness, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the injustice, I also need, I also understand why, like, Jesus had to die on the cross. So we felt like we needed to talk about both at once because I think for many people, they both feel the scientific objection or the materialist objection to God, but then they also feel the question of suffering. So we just wanted to put those together. And then that sense that the God who speaks and who created us and spoke in Jesus Christ also can speak through the church. But then the question is, if the Holy Spirit's been given to the church, why aren't Christians holier? So we wanted to look at that. And then the good news of Jesus Christ, why is the blood good news? And then, you know, so these are all basically kind of dealing with the fundamental doctrinal issues. Um, and then that sense of ultimately justification, why would God hold his faults against us? Then we move in six, seven, eight, nine to, right, we have to have that sense of conversion. So not only God's justification, but justification is lived out in our lives, the deeper conversion. So many Catholics today, I think, have a sense that they can just be like everyone else, right? And and that is a that's a, right lukewarm. It's not. It's just not a very. It's it's not a very happy way to go. It's like going to the gym but never working out hard. It's not I've been going to the gym for. I've been going to the gym for years, but I'm not in good shape. Well, that's <laughs> that's fine, but that doesn't. All that says is that you really haven't been going to the gym. Yeah. Uh, there was a joke I think that said church is kind of like football. Many attend, but few understand. You know, so. It's that element. And then we looked about caring for the poor, uh, sexual teachings, gossip, fighting, and then ultimately with a certain sense of saints at the end, with a sense of mission and purpose. Yeah, I like the um, I really like diving into like why why be good and, and you know, especially drilling down on things like why concern, why take care of the poor, you know, kind of going back to that Joe Rogan comment earlier, Justin, 
Um, you know, he's like, Every, everybody should just believe this. You shouldn't need a book to tell you this. Um, I actually, I think you should in one sense. Like if you loose yourself from belief in God as the lawgiver, then like it doesn't make sense to be moral. And th like, th I know this, this, for some people, this might be a controversial thought, uh, thought, and I'm not advocating that anybody would be immoral because I want everybody to be very moral. But I don't understand why someone who doesn't believe in God would still feel that this, like, rather could re like could rationally follow their conscience rather than just whatever whim of the day came by. Um, and yeah, that, one, one thing I've thought about that a lot, because we, th I talk about that a lot with students at different times and. I really think that many people, and it's interesting, Aquinas will, in his, um, in his Summa Theologiae, he will, he has a famous question, right? Does God exist? He has five ways that it does. But before he says that, he goes, even though most people can't demonstrate that God exists, like, because most people haven't studied philosophy and things, he says, they have just an innate, vague sense of God's existence. And I think that most people, not all, but many people, when they talk about not believing in God, what they really mean is I don't believe in the God that I was raised in. Yeah. Um, and but I do believe in some kind of higher purpose, some kind of higher meaning. They'll call that God sometimes maybe the universe or some spirit, but they're attributing to the universe or some spirit the very characteristics that they learned from their Christian faith. So that God <laughs> is somehow good and forgiving. So yeah. they're even though so it, like I, I feel like there's that residue of faith or yeah. of some yeah. notion of a good, loving God behind the universe. They've just kind of forgotten where they learned it. Um, and so I think sometimes if we can call them and say kind of like, well, hey, why do you think the universe has those characteristics? you know, ask them questions. I mean, I think it's also a great way. Part of the reason why we wrote this book is also to um, help support people who want to learn their faith more and share their faith more. And I think a great way of doing that is to ask people questions, right? Well, why do you believe that? One thing is to tell them what your belief is incon inconsistent. And you might not be wrong, but I think first would be, well, like, what do you believe about goodness? What do you believe about God? Um, do you believe the universe has a purpose? Is there a meaning to our life? And then why do you do that? And if there is, well, what would you, and you can even ask them, what would be the best argument for Catholicism, right? What would be the best argument for God's existence? And kind of see what they say. And in some sense, what you're doing is you're posing a problem for them to have to think about, yeah, yeah. have to answer. Yeah, I, I really like that approach because we have all of these like unproblematized assumptions or unproblematized bases and it it's just such a good intellectual exercise to, to mm -hmm. go back and and kind of poke that and be like okay how soft is that or how firm is yeah. that yeah. um i like that word by the way unproblematized yeah <laughs> i i stole that from some intellectual somewhere i don't know is that a real word? i like that, that right. well to no to problematize like i never thought of of just saying that um so i don't know i don't know who coined that but every you know i think there's there's some intellectual words like, I feel like the word hermeneutic can always be replaced with lens in like 100% of the cases. <laughs> so that's there for guys who are like, oh, I, like my syllable or my 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 letter count isn't long enough. Or they're worried about a publisher yeah. telling them it's not long enough. Um, well, there were a kind of a, one question then a, a spinoff question that I was really interested with, um, just because I think it's so foreign sounding to a modern audience. And that's the chapter, How Can Christ's Blood Be Good News? Um, so first, you discuss in this chapter uh, sacrifice and what that would have meant to the ancients. Um, why do you think that, or rather, not necessarily why, but um, how could a modern audience read scripture and, and familiarize with themselves, familiarize themselves with the idea of sacrifice in such a way that they, they don't just get turned off by it? Yeah, I think the first thing to begin with is. We can think about sacrifice as if I want to achieve a great goal, I often need to sacrifice to get there. I think people understand this. I have to sacrifice to train in order to run a marathon. Um, I have to sacrifice, um, you know, if, if I want to work hard on a big project, I have to sacrifice time watching TV. Um, perhaps the opposite, right? If I, I, if I want to watch TV, I have to sacrifice my project, whatever it is. But they understand that idea. So I think that's the first thing to think about. And the second theme about sacrifice is the idea that 
What about when we've done something wrong? When we've done something wrong, when something's been taken from us, somehow, like if you've stolen my car, you then have to make the sacrifice of giving it back to me. Right. That kind of makes sense to people. Yeah. So if we think about, in a way, one of the things that are problems is that there's something wrong with us. Uh, G.K. Chesterton actually once wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? And the short answer is I am. Right? And so one of our problems in returning to God is our own ego. What is our problem with genuinely having a the best friendship we want to have with another person or the closest friendship we want to have with, um, you know, perhaps a spouse or family members or a close relationship even with God, it's some sense that there is our ego gets in the way. We may not want to admit that. So how could we sacrifice our own ego? We have a sense that we need to, to accomplish our big goals, but those in a way are driven by our ego. And if we turn relationships into merely an ego project, we end up destroying them. Um, now, you may be successful for a while at forcing relationships and forcing projects through your own ego, but at some point they will fail. And then what will you have left? So what I would say is that when Jesus Christ sacrifices himself for us, what he's doing is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? We, in a way, need a blood transfusion, right? Not because our immune system is bad and not because we're sick, but because we're fundamentally self-centered, right? Ezekiel says we need to take away our hearts of stone. God will take away our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In a way, Jesus gives us his own heart his own blood, right? So that, and that blood is a blood that actually offered himself, right, for us so that we could be totally able to love our neighbor and love God as God loves us so that, right, in Jesus Christ, we not only love one another as we love, but we love as he loves, right? I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. The only way he can do that is if somehow his blood flows in our veins, Right. And so when his blood is shed on the cross out of love, when his blood is renewed in the Eucharist of communion, right? One sacrifice for all time, for all eternity, but now made present again so that we can participate in that holy communion with God. Right. We then become capable of right loving God with Jesus's own love, loving our neighbor, and perhaps even most importantly, if we really slow down, think about the fact that we could love ourselves the way Jesus loves us, right? Isn't that kind of the deepest word we want to hear? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because yeah, yeah. in so many ways, we know we haven't been good and faithful servants, right? But ultimately in Christ, when Christ's blood is in us, that when Jesus, when God, the father looks at us, he sees true sons, right? He sees Michael, but he sees Michael now in Christ, and that's a newness of life. And that newness of life, just like our original life, had to come through the sharing, right, uh, or developing and growing in our the womb of our mother, right? We have to, right, in a certain sense, grow in the womb of the church um, and, and receive this new life from Jesus Christ, a life in a way where we have um, made up for those things we've done wrong because of Christ's sacrifice, not what we've done. That... Like that's so that answer right there. So, friends, if you're listening, the next time you go to mass, I would recommend just listening to that answer almost as like a pre mass meditation. And I I think that alone, if you asked like any given person, what's the high point of the mass? I think you'd get a a lot of really interesting answers. Some would say the sign of peace, some would say the homily, some would say the words of institution, some might say when I receive, some might say, well, for me, the high point's when I leave. Um, But what I'd be like just looking at the church, the um, it's the Eucharistic prayer. That's the high point. And the reason is because it's this offering to the father, but not just of Jesus, but it's of like us with Jesus, like we're joined with him. And so it's, it's like what you just described that allows us to be offered to the father as that, that restored, redeemed son and daughter. And there's like that to me, that's why, like, I, I don't go out of obligation. I go because I can't wait 
to be a part of that, to be like united with the son, presented to the father, giving him the, the praise and the thanksgiving and the glory that he deserves. Yeah, that beautifully said. Thanks. Well, that so it's kind of like a, a, a tag, tag onto that question. You address a topic in this book that I don't know that I've ever heard anybody uh, articulate and definitely not so well. Um, you explain that baptism is what prepares or allows us to participate and share in the Eucharistic presence of Jesus. So this means there's a multi-step initiation into the mysteries of Christ's life. And that it almost seems as if we've, we've kind of collapsed and condensed all of Catholicism into the one moment of, well, just I receive Jesus. And um, understanding this is, no, there's, there's more to it than that. Um, I wanted to ask, could you explain a little bit why like why we have this multi-step process, why there's baptism and then why there's the, like why we go to mass and why we go to mass multiple times, not just once. Yeah. Well, I think we can first look on a natural level, right? We're born into a family. We're adopted into the family. Uh, but of course we also grow and we're nourished by the family, right? We also gather for holidays and we celebrate meals together. And those meals in a way are almost like covenantal re renewals, Right. Which is why yeah, if, you skip, yeah. if you skip, you know, family Christmas or family Thanksgivings for so many years, at a certain point, you're just really no longer a vibrant member of the family. Yeah. Yeah. So you look at the Old Testament again, there were ways of entering the covenant, uh, especially say through circumcision or through being born into a Jewish family. But then you would celebrate the Passover. And when you celebrated those Passovers, you were you were reliving what Israel had done. And you were making it your own. So, which is why then we can't immediately go and receive the Eucharist. We have to first be baptized into the new covenant family of God. But once we are, that's not enough because we want to grow. We need to re, um, you know, re-participate. When Jesus on the Last Supper, right, when he says, I'm establishing the new covenant, which is crazy. You can't have a new covenant because there's only one covenant, right? Except for the fact that the old covenant predicted a new covenant, right? In Jeremiah and other prophets. Uh, when he said that, that was the covenant he was making, his own sacrifice that we would enter into. Baptism, again, allows us to do that. The Eucharist becomes the center. And then all that we do becomes reoriented by that. Our work, our play, our family life. But I also would just make them just pause for a moment and also just think about our tears, right? Our, our wounds, our hurts, um, maybe the worst hurts, the hurts that hurt us from hurting other people, right? The shame that we feel, yeah, yeah. those sorts of things. Um, sometimes, of course, those need to go to confession, depending on what they are. Um, but they always kind of somewhat need to go to the Eucharist. Right. Um, that we do emphasize, by the way, that right, mortal sins ought to be confessed in the sacrament of penance. But it's also the case that the Eucharist itself is an act of mercy. It's why we pray. Right. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Right. That in the Eucharist, each time we kind of have this certain sense in which we hand over our sins to Jesus and he hands over his forgiveness to us. So we, we just did an episode about St. Don Bosco, but he has a great quote about communion. He says, I go to Holy Communion, not because I am good, but to become good. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and absolutely right. We need to also emphasize, right. Hey, we need to, it's never a presumption and it's great to um, be, get the additional healing that's appropriate yeah, through yeah. the sacrament of confession. Um, but it's also the case that every day I go wounded and I somehow find healing. And so this becomes a great source of joy. And it's also that sense that like, as Christians, we will never suffer alone. We may die alone with, from other people, but we will never die alone from Christ, right? Because Christ actually already has entered into death. So when we die, right, we die with him and he died, right? He is with us in all of our suffering, our loneliness, whatever our struggles are that we are facing right now, he is with us. I just want to say one thing that's kind of interesting is, Jesus at one point, right, the shortest uh, line in the gospel says Jesus wept, right? He wept over the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus, Lazarus's death. He wept over Israel's rejection and sin. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane. In many ways, you think about Jesus became man 
in part so he could shed his blood on the cross, but also so that he could weep and so that we could see his tears, mm-hmm. right? So that we could be that convinced of God's love for us and the fact that he never, right, never ignores or doesn't care about us, right? First Peter 5, 7, I think, says something, right? Cast his cares on the Lord because he cares for you. That's true. But when we see Jesus weeping over us, you know, then we yeah. then we can remember that. Yeah, yeah. Those, are, those are great scripture passages to sit and, and pray with. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Mike, everything you've just been sharing made me realize, you know, that to a greater extent that, like you said, we go into scripture, enter into the story. Every sacrament we, we get to every liturgy, we get to enter back into the story. So, yeah. you know, um, preparing ourselves in this way with this knowledge helps us. If we do have a friend come to mass with us that hasn't been before or been in a while, we can explain it with this lens of salvation history and the church's family that can really help open someone's eyes. Yeah. And I think it's, remember is there's a line from uh, Jesus. I think it's like maybe Matthew 19, but he's talking about kind of uh, the role of marriage and divorce and other stuff. And he says, in the beginning, it was not so. That line is so important for us. We're in the midst of a world that's somewhat chaotic, full of suffering and injustice. And Jesus tells us in the Bible, in the beginning, it was not so. That's what we learned from Genesis. In the beginning, it was not so. What we learned is the world was fundamentally created good. It was created ordered. We were created ordered within ourselves, with one another and with God. Through sin, right, disorder and death entered the world. So now we live in a place of exile of alienation we see the exile in the old testament as israel is actually exiled but then we recognize all of us are exiled all of us were created for communion with god but it's also the case that we no longer we now cannot reestablish that communion with god so god then comes into our history comes in to meet us so that through the cross through the resurrection of jesus christ right humanity returns to god And now we then have the choice before us, right? Which is, will we choose to somehow be in Christ? Will we choose to believe in Jesus Christ, right? To accept him as our Lord, to be baptized into his name, to receive him as our Lord and Savior in the Eucharist, right? And to let him be king of our life, right? Then we can kind of walk that path back to God that he made possible. And so that story in a way is just kind of a very simple story, but on the other hand, it's very complex. And each of the different issues we look at become different when we think about what that means, right? We don't just think about what we should give to the poor or how we should live sexually in light of how we feel today. We have to go back, well, what were we created for? How did we get confused and broken? What did Jesus Christ offer us? And then how do we let Jesus Christ be Lord of our possessions? How do we let Jesus Christ be Lord of our marriage if we're married? How do we let Jesus Christ be Lord of our mouth, right? If we're going to be speaking, right? So that we may, you know, choose not to gossip, right? Not to backbite. All these different elements. So Dr. Michael, you've been working with Dr. Levering for over a decade. I've had the pleasure of reading Holy People, Holy Land. I know I bet many that listen to our podcast have read that book. It's a, it's it's one of your great works and it was used in a class I took, a Masters of Theology class. But um I'd love to hear from you. How did that partnership begin? And what's it been for like what's it been like for the two of you to see that partnership grow and develop over time? Is this did you think it'd be this, you know, 14 years ago? Yeah, so Uh, Matthew and I have been friends for a long time. We met in uh, graduate school, as I mentioned earlier. Um, We really just became friends first as two people trying to figure out what Christ wanted of us, what the Bible taught, what the tradition of the church uh, was. And it was really that common love of truth that kept us together. Uh, And then I think being involved in initiatives just naturally flowed out of that wanting to teach together, develop things together, organize conferences together, uh, write books together. Uh, these are natural things. And I, I would say that I'm a big believer in the buddy system. You know, that, um, you know, when you're trying to teach kids to swim, everybody gets a buddy. Um, when you're trying to have people, like everybody should get a mentor when they're doing something new. 
this buddy system is really important. Jesus, as you know, when he sends out his disciples, he sent them out two by two. Why? They, they should have been good enough without it, and they weren't really good enough even two by two. But we just funny system, Jesus. Yeah, I, I I love it because for me, I know that I myself I can push myself a lot, and I can come up with a lot of good ideas. But I have a lot of ideas that I will come up with, and I never act on. I, I think about them. I'm sitting in prayer, and I come up with these initiatives, and nothing happens. But when I have another person and I share it with them, they're sharing an idea with me. We, we make, we fill up what the other person is lacking, you know, and I just think that is so important for really having kind of a fun, productive, professional life, but also certainly for trying to carry out the mission of evangelization, right? As teachers or as scholars, it's very hard in the academic world. Academic world is very individual, very kind of, we're all in our own silos. So I consider it really just a a real gift of my life that I've been able to work with uh, Matthew Levering on a number of books and on a number of other projects. Um, but I definitely know that the two of us are together able to accomplish certainly twice more than we would alone. That's encouraging to hear. You know, when Justin and I started this, this partnership um, going on, on two years ago now, um, we really had no idea what it was going to look like. And th the Lord definitely sped us through. So I, I think we were both surprised at how fast things came along. The pandemic hit right when we decided to write this book together. And um, we actually kind of shockingly finished, I think we finished the really like 95% of the writing in three months. And it, I mean, just we spent a lot of time like talking and brainstorming and thinking together yeah. and refining the kind of the bones of it first. But then once we had that in place, the writing just flowed from that. And then we were we had developed this the synergy together. So that's um, I think that's one of the one of the gems that everybody should take from this, like find a buddy. Yeah, just, just absolutely. Like they're running buddies. Um, I love it. Yeah. You're going to run faster if you've got somebody with you. Uh, yeah, you don't even notice if you're running, you run an hour talking to somebody, you don't even notice it happen. You know, if it's you against the world, you know, you're either going to lose or you're going to develop a really bad ego, yeah. you know, like, so what you need to do is kind of when you find a buddy, then it's like you, you, you're encouraged when you have setbacks. And also then when your successes, they're never just yours. So yeah, it, it's, it's a really kind of healing. Um, or a good buddy will, will help you bring that ego down a little bit. Too. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you yeah. you say that about the um just kind of all of that. Like I think when when I'm having a bad day, Justin's not, and when Justin's having a bad day, I'm not. Yeah, which is exactly how this partnership's played out too. Is over the past two years, and you can relate to this with with Professor uh, Levering. But yeah, we we there's been times I've pushed us, he's pushed us, but because of that partnership and the Lord in the middle and the boat with us, it's kept us going. Yeah, yeah. And you can see it right in the early church, you know, like um, you know, Paul and Barnabas yeah, would, you yeah. know, work together. Prisca and Aquila, you have a married couple working together, which I think is hard to pull off all the time, at least is <laughs> uh, at least professionally. Um I mean I'm still happily happily married 27 years. Um, uh, but you know, but I also find that sometimes um it, but like again, you know, finding other people, I just think it's 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 a natural way that the gospel was spread early on. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's something that we should really try to recover and foster. Amen. 100%. Yeah. So on that note of living as missionary disciples, you said find a running buddy. But what would be, you know, your last golden piece of advice to someone just trying to live the gospel? Uh, what would be your key piece of advice to folks listening? So I think the two key themes about becoming missionary disciples are first being genuinely interested in other people and getting to know them and make friends. Uh, I think a key aspect is that we have to remember is that we are not Jesus Christ. Uh, that sounds pretty straightforward, but we, um, but sometimes we forget, we're not the one who has everything right. We just know the person who does. So we can really establish friendships. I've found often through our very vulnerabilities we need to show that we struggle and that we find help in our struggling from, from God and from Jesus Christ. Uh, so that I think is a partly is make friends, get to know people, but make friends that are real because we share our vulnerabilities. If we only are the ones asking them about their problems, we're trying to set ourselves up as higher. That's not a genuine friendship. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first thing that I think is really important. The second thing I would say, and this is something I've even learned more and maybe in the last five years is the idea of 
um, asking questions that are open-ended. I, I used to always ask questions, but I always had the answer uh, and then would want to give it. But now I tend to find that just asking questions to help get the other person thinking, because the more the other person is thinking and trying to ask questions and answer questions, then the more you begin to set up the time for the dialogue where you can begin sharing, hey, let me share with you what I learned. And maybe just the last point um, is just really be cautious about language, right? You know, we can make these points as simple as possible. People who may not know anything about, say, the Blessed Virgin Mary still know about prayer and they can understand what it means. Do you pray? Do you pray to something higher than yourself? Okay, well, then let's share. This is how I pray. You know, first, this is how I pray to God. And then maybe over time talking about, okay, this is how I pray to Jesus Christ. Then this is even how I pray to his mother. Right. You know what I mean? But like sometimes I find that. um beginning with that kind of connection with the other person. The other person is human. They ask this, they're, they're, they have this inner kind of orientation to want to find meaning in God and want to worship something higher than them. Of course, we find a thousand things to fill it up with that are not God, right? We know that. But I do think we want to see that there's that fundamental harmony that the other person is seeking what we ourselves are seeking. So we can describe that relationship. And I think that can be helpful. Those are great answers. I I love those. We've we touch a lot on on the theme of authentic friendship here. Oh, um, wonderful! Kind of recognizing wonderful. that, like you, if you go in with this duplicitousness of, well, I'm gonna, I'm like I'm gonna be their friend so that I can like it, it it has to stop. Like no no, friendship is a good in yes. itself, and like become a friend for with somebody, and be okay with them never becoming Catholic. And yes. I I think that's gonna set you up well for like then yeah. they they might listen to you. Yeah. And genuine friendship also is going to share what is most important to me in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is ultimately my relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So final question here, and you can, this can be about anything. So don't feel like you have to say, don't give (laughs) us like a theological answer if you don't want to. So what is a book that you really want to write, but haven't yet? Well, uh, actually Matthew Levering and I are talking about writing another book on uh, knowing Jesus Christ. So um, we've written a book on the Bible, a book on uh, Thomas Aquinas. We've written another book on the Bible and these kind of crises in the church. Um, so I think we really want to tie to just say, how do we come to get to know Jesus Christ? And especially through scripture and the sacraments. Um, do so it, not just knowing, or uh, sorry, scripture and the, uh, scripture and uh, sorry, the saints. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully that'll go well. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's it's never it's it's never fun at the beginning of thinking of writing a book because it's a it's a long hard commitment. Uh, yeah, and yeah, and yet I, I I'm I'm hopeful though that we can uh, do something that would be you know helpful to people because ultimately I feel like that's what you know the faith is is you know God has a face, right? God has a face, and He has spoken to us. He has loved us, uh, and He's right called us His own, and so. I, I think that's really wonderful news. And I kind of ask people, you know, for me, it's sometimes just take that time. Do I really believe God loves me? Do I believe that God delights in me? Um, and I feel like that's what we begin to see in Jesus Christ. What we really kind of walk away from the whole book as a whole that we wrote this time, the word of wisdom of the word is that in some sense, right. We are much worse than we like to think, you know, but we are also in Christ much, much more loved by God than we could ever imagine. Yeah. So thank you all so much oh, for having bet. me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. You bet. Well, the pleasure was all ours and do write that book, please. Like I, as you said it, I got excited. Like I want to read that book. I want to tell other people about that book. It's a shame it doesn't exist yet. So like make haste, right? Please. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to all your work. Oh, awesome. Well, thanks so much. God bless you, brother, and look forward, hopefully, to having you back on. Absolutely. All righty. Peace. Thank you. God bless. Peace.